0: Criminal crime historian Eve Lazarus's new book, "Cold Case BC," it has tons of cases in it. it is a It is a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Um, but just to provide some context, you know they are often the forgotten victims of forgotten crimes, remembered only through the years and decades by those closest to them, perhaps the odd reporter who covered the story at the time, and often the officers that investigated them, although not always and sometimes the communities they left behind. In B.C. alone, as Eve points out, there are hundreds of unsolved murders dating back decades and many more disappearances and other unexplained events where people have seemingly vanished. Justice delayed, of course, is justice denied. Justice never delivered is no justice at all. And so Eve has made it her mission to document some of those cases, digging up old details, speaking to family members, investigators, others who knew them, friends, and so forth, about crimes that long ago went cold. Uh, She is a crime historian, uh, again, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and now Cold Case Case BC. As far as I can tell, it's 16 cases, but she can correct me, dating back as far as the 1940s and communities as far apart as Victoria in the south here on Vancouver Island to as far north as the so-called Highway of Tears, all of it in an effort to call attention to the cases and to the victims, with the hope, the faint hope sometimes, of finding some answers, and in some cases, to document how very cold cases were in fact finally solved. Let's begin on that Highway of Tears. It's an expression I'm sure you've probably heard. A stretch of highways uh, 1697 and 5 in the northern part of BC, where at least 18 indigenous women have been murdered or disappeared over the past half century. And Eve Lazarus, a crime historian, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and the latest Cold Case BC, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year.
1: Oh, happy new year to you. Thank you for having me.
0: It is quite the um, it's a remarkable collection of of, of stories simply because of the amount of research you must have had to put into it. Um tell me a bit about, you know, I found there was a common theme with many of the cases, and a lot of them were sort of focused on those who were left behind looking for answers with very little help, it turned out.
1: Right. Uh, it was really important for me to tell the story of the victim and, and, in a sense, to try to give them back their voice. And and to do that, you know, I really needed to, to talk to the families, and particularly with the unsolved murders, as I'm sure you know, that police won't talk about them at all. So uh, you can't get any information from RCMP or or police on any of these doesn't matter how old and you know i've tried in the past filing FOIs and all sorts of things and um being shut down that way so it's really frustrating particularly for families that have got decades old cases that just aren't being worked on and every case in cold case uh, the, the most recent was 1993 so they're all quite a few years before dna came out and sort of became part of the, the forensic toolkit and Without it, you know, in, in those days before DNA, evidence wasn't treated very kindly. A lot of it was lost, it was contaminated, it was thrown out. So these cases, in, you know, we keep hearing about so many cases being solved south of the border through genetic genealogy and, and other things um, aren't going to happen to these cases because there just isn't any DNA there. So the only way they're really going to get solved, in my opinion, is to keep talking about them, to keep them alive in the media, on social media, and, um, and just hope that more information could come forward and, and help to solve them.
0: One of the um, things that really stands out, you did devote three chapters of this book to cases that um, involve the so-called highway of tears, as we called including the very first victim. Gloria Moody. This is a case I didn't know much about, other than the name, because obviously when they released those 18 names, uh, you looked at all of them, and that was the first one back in 1969. Tell me a bit about her case and why you chose to include her in the book.
1: Well, Cold Case um, BC is really divided up into three areas. It's unsolved murders, it's um, murders that were solved after a really long time, and it's missing people. And when I looked at the Highway of Tears, um, I really didn't know much about it. And I was kind of, the more I kind of looked into it, the more shocked I was. You know, this is just such an incredible national tragedy that we're starting to hear a bit more about. But, you know, when I started looking into the cases, um, I'd never heard of the, the Gloria Moody. I'd, you know, seen her face, as we all have in those long lists and stuff like that. But I didn't know anything about her as a person. And I thought because she was the oldest case that was unsolved as those 18 Apana cases, that I'd really take a, a look at her. And I'd connected with her daughter, Vanessa, on social media. So I was able to sort of talk to her. And now she was only four years old when her mother was killed, so she had no memory of her. But I was able to talk to her about, you know, the, the police investigation or lack of it over the decades and um, until it actually became part of Aparna. And I was able to find um, the inquest, of her mother and and, and just sort of work there and sort of build a story around who she was and and what had happened to her and uh, what had happened over the years.
0: Yeah. She was, I gather, 24. And this was a weekend away. This was meant to be a weekend of celebration, right? That ended um, with sort of indescribable brutality.
1: Yeah, Yeah. 26 year old mother of two from Bella Cooler and um, her parents, had um, said, hey, we're going to take you away, you and your younger brother, for a weekend you know, to unwind and have some fun in, in Williams Lake. And, and back then it was like a 12-hour drive apparently and they did it. They stopped on the way and visited relatives and um, Gloria and her brother let loose and sort of did a bar hop and stuff like that. And at some point during the night, uh, they were at the Ranch Hotel and her brother lost sight of her and she wasn't seen again that night and they found a body the next day So, and horrifically murdered um, It it's just horrible and it's one of these worst kept secrets apparently in Williams Lake who did it uh, these three men and gradually they died two died in the 70s and, and one in the 80s and um, police in the 90s went to Vanessa and her family and said well you know we know who did it, the case is resolved, they're dead now, we can't do anything about it, um, thanks very much. And that was the first time she'd ever really been contacted by them, which I just find astounding, decades later. And then when partner came on the scene and, and formed in 2005, um, they had a certain amount of criteria they were looking at. The, the victims had to be female. The crime must have occurred near one of the, the three highways Um, the victims were were typically engaged in, although not always, but in a high-risk activity like hitchhiking or sex work, and the killer had to be a stranger. And um, in Gloria's case, of course, she was near the highway, she was female, um, and the killer was definitely a stranger, so she was part of that criteria that they looked at. And they still hadn't solved the case, but uh, they did take a... A long, long look back at it, and it, it still it, it remains resolved but unsolved.
0: It was interesting that um, Epana, by the way, was the uh, was the inquiry or the investigations launched into these uh, eighteen uh, women who were associated, or were murdered or disappeared around the Highway of Tears, and Gloria Moody's name, despite the fact that the circumstances were it seemed a terribly kept secret in the town. Uh, she still wound up on that list, giving the family, as you mentioned, the family some hope that they might get an answer one day. But it feels like they had, they have all the answers they're going to get. It seems like um, one of the things that struck me reading that story, and this is true of many stories, and when it comes to the highway of tears, is how sort of, and I don't want to cast too many aspersions. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the police didn't seem too fussed.
1: No. No, and I, I think that's happened a lot. Um, and most people will tell you it wasn't in, until Nicole Hoare, a white girl, uh, went mis- went missing from Prince George in the early two uh, thousands that they really kicked this into gear. Um, you know, when you look at some of these cases, you know, you've got the, the Jack family, which is not part of these eighteen. And I, I'm always a bit confused about um, why they, you know, some mm-hmm. cases were, were included and some weren't. Um, in the 18 cases, for example, 13 were teenagers, and um, uh, age and the ages range from 12 to, to 33. But for example, with the Jacks family, which is just, I, I'd never heard of it, and it, it just shocked me that I hadn't heard of this case. And in 1989, an entire family of four went missing, and I think it's the first time in Canadian history that a whole family went missing, and it's still missing. And and yet there was virtually nothing about it. Um, There wasn't much... When they first went missing, nothing was really done. And and, and one problem was that um, they thought they were going to get some work at a logging camp. And we're talking that Doreen and um, her husband, Ronnie, had two kids. They were both 26 years old only, and they had two kids aged um, four and nine, I think, Russell and Ryan. And they're a fairly impoverished living in Prince George. And Ronnie was offered some work in a logging camp. And this man who approached him at the pub also said, look, you know, and we can give your wife a job as a cook. And uh, when they weren't able to get daycare for children, the children, the guy said, oh, you know, it's OK, we can look after them at the logging camp It's a daycare, which, you know, just didn't make any sense at all. But I, I think yeah. they were quite desperate. And um, part of the thing was they had to leave with him immediately and they did but Ronnie fortunately called his mother and uh, just told her what was going on and said you know we've got jobs you know, this is great we'll be away for about 10 days but then he said something really strange he said if we don't come back come look for us so he must have had some kind of indication that it might not all have been on the up and up my sister Monica was beautiful sweet kind and good at everything I ever saw her do <laughs> Today is a fine day to celebrate her final victory.
0: I'm happy to say that we have finally been given justice. The sister of Monica Jack, who vanished at the age of 12 while riding her bike in Merritt, B.C. in May of 1978, Uh, another of the cases featured in the Highway of Tears section, of Eve Lazarus' new book, Cold Case B.C. Eve, this was quite the case as well. I'll let you finish talking about the Jack family. We have lots of time over the next uh, 40 minutes or so to talk about this. The Jack family, no relation, um, went missing the whole family. As you mentioned, the 26-year-old couple and their two kids. uh, Never heard from again, right, that family? No, nothing. Not a
1: trace of them was found. And, And one of the problems was because, you know, they'd told everyone they were going away for 10 days, no one looked for them for that 10 days, and um, when they didn't come back, at, um, the, the, Ronnie's mother filed a, a report with the police. Now, I don't know how much work they actually did at that stage with them, but you know they are already behind. Uh, they couldn't have got a good description. They did get a description of the man that Ronnie talked to that was supposedly you know, offering them a job, but it was a couple of weeks had gone by. Uh, they had a description of the car, but again, you know, couldn't really be sure if it was the same night, and you know, there were a lot of problems there just getting the investigation underway. Um, but yeah, but nothing, nothing was nothing. ever found, and and really, uh, I heard about this through uh, Doring's younger sister Marlene, who's just been relentless, um, keeping attention going for for this family and, and getting the RCMP to, you know, keep looking at it. And she's done age progression photos of the boys. And, you know, she's I really admire what she's been doing to, to keep this in the public light.
0: It's, um, it's interesting you mention that because I think that's another vein that exists through many of these stories is the sort of is the is the families left behind. And we just heard from Monica Jack's younger sister at the time. Uh, Monica was just 12 when she disappeared in Merritt in 1978. Um, Her body wasn't found for many years. A suspect wasn't arrested for many years after that. But Mm -hmm. um, the families really have always have never forgotten. Right. And they just keep keep pushing, trying to figure out if there isn't an answer out there for them.
1: Yeah. And I found it's not just the families. I mean, it's obviously tragic for them and it goes on for decades and decades, but it's also whole communities, you know, particularly missing people cases that have searched for these people, knew these people, wanted some kind of answer. And, you know, decades go past and there's no closure. And with this case, it was particularly heart-wrenching with Monica Jack. I mean, she was... She'd just 12 years old, she'd been given an early birthday present, a 10-speed bike and she'd been given permission to ride, meet her cousin on the way and ride to Merritt and do some shopping and actually buy a birthday present for Liz, whose um, birthday was the next day and she was coming back and just on her way home, not far from her home, her, her mother and sisters had actually passed her in the car and she'd been abducted. She was just abducted, and her body wasn't found for 17 years. So the family had to, you know, go through all that with no closure at all. And and then when her body was found, you know, it took 40 years after she was murdered to convict her um, murderer.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to get into how they found her murderer, because there, there are some mysteries in your book of course cases that remain cold cases that may never be solved but you've also included some examples uh by different techniques um the killer was in fact identified and caught and convicted and this is one of those cases it is a particularly odd way that they did it but they did manage uh to find their their suspect and their their guilty party at the end of it all um but i you know again it we just looking at that picture of Monica Jack, it always strikes me that they don't age, right? So they're, mm. so that same face always looks back at you saying, you know, you, you, know, you move on, but they never do. And it, they mm. always seem to sit there saying, you know, someone's out there who knows what happened to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was it's so interesting in the sense that they had Gary Handlin, who was convicted of the murder in the end, but they had him in their sights from really day one.
0: Eve Lazarus is our guest for the segment this month. She's talking to us about her book called Cold Case BC, which examines several uh, murders, unsolved and solved, as well as missing people, uh, cold cases across the province of BC, dating from 1993 all the way back to to the warriors, really, back to the Second World War. Uh, a couple of unsolved murders here in the Victoria area. Actually, the case we've been talking about now, though, it was a high-profile one. It was the disappearance of twelve-year-old Monica Jack in Merritt, BC, back in 1978, and the eventual uh, conviction of her killer, uh, who uh, was was in, in was in at least in sight of police, quite early in the, in, the, in the investigation. They had a description of the vehicle. He happened to own a similar vehicle. Um, he had a record. He would be been convicted of sex offenses, I believe. Uh, all of it, though, G- Gary Taylor, Taylor Hanlon wouldn't be arrested for decades. Uh, Eve, what happened? He simply got away with it.
1: Yeah, and it was the second one. He was also uh, originally indicted for uh, Catherine Mary Herbert's murder in Abbotsford. Uh, She was an 11-year-old girl in 1975, and he had a connection to the family for that, but they couldn't get him on that either. And, um, yeah, decades went past, and they decided uh, in 2014 to take another look at it. And by that time, he was living in um, Minden in Ontario, and I think he was running a, a small... Uh, renovation business he was married or had a partner and uh, they decided to launch a Mr Big Sting and this is pretty fascinating it's an, an RCMP it is. thing <laughs> yeah. and, uh, that came up in the 90s it's um, gone through quite a few changes and things but it, it's been quite successful I'm always surprised why you think you know do criminals not listen to shows like yours and read books yeah and- and for but shows like yours, they yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: like, no, I was watching his con- his confession as part of the public record, and yeah, yeah you'd be hard pressed to to buy what uh, what the undercover officer is selling. But in fact, they essentially convince him that if he gives up the details, they can get someone else to take the fall for it, right?
1: But they put in months and months of work as well, you know, grooming True, them. I guess you know they sort of um, hire him to, to work in what he thinks is a criminal organisation and, you know, they make up all these um, scenarios that he thinks are illegal, like carjacking or drugs or, you know, beating up someone or, you know, all sorts of sort of weird things and they get progressively more and more and they spend a, a ton of money on this, you know, they fly them all around the country and, and uh, you know, take them out for fancy dinners and things like that and all the while, you know, they're, they're grooming the, this guy to, to become part of a, a larger criminal organisation, or at least he thinks he is. He's obviously not doing anything really illegal. Uh, but by the time you know, he gets to a certain point, uh, they say, look, you know, we've got um, contacts in the police force. We know you're going to be charged with this murder. They've got DNA, but we can help you. We can get you out of this. We've got someone who's dying and um, he will do this as a deathbed confession if you give his family a bunch of money and we'll do that for you but you, first of all you have to tell us everything you have to tell us everything about the murder and how it was done and they even took him back to Merritt and had him show them where he abducted her and, and then later where he um, buried the bones and or buried the body where they'd found the bones and he made a really detailed confession. It was quite chilling, wasn't it, when you sort of listen to it and, and see yeah. him? Yeah,
0: Yeah. And it was, it was, I gather that after that, at least he appears to have sort of flown under the radar after that. I mean, despite his, his very violent past uh, up until this point, and again, uh, convicted of one murder, they dropped the other murder charge that you referred to once Mm. he'd been convicted of this one. Um, But yeah, again, though, you know, it, it does strike you as, as you look back and it's so easy with hindsight you look back at that case and think, well, how could they not have, you know, he was already a suspect in another disappearance and murder of a young girl. How could they not have pushed a little harder on this one? And it gets back to wondering whether the victims were taken seriously.
1: Yeah, uh, well, again, they didn't have a body. So huge right. problem there, right? So no evidence, no body. Um, and Catherine Herbert I can't remember offhand, I didn't write about her in detail, no. um, how long her body was found, but I think it was quite a gap of time as well. So they're already really behind in the investigation. And a lot of these, not particularly, you know, this 12-year-old, they obviously took that seriously as a missing person. But a lot of the cases, you know, when they're a bit older, like Lindsay Nichols, 14-year-old, they just weren't taken seriously. They were just told on a. You know, they've got a history, they're obviously a runaway, you know, sort of go away. Weeks and weeks and months go by, uh, especially when, you know, a body isn't found and nothing's been done. And then it's really, you know, too late to gather that crucial evidence that would help find what happened. Um,
0: From one case that was really about um, police techniques to another that was really about science. Uh, And this is one that I knew because I was... Here by the time the arrests were made, but uh, Tanya Van Kylenberg was 18, Mm -hmm. Jay Cook 20. They were a young couple who lived in Saanich, which is a suburb of Victoria. They had gone off to Seattle for the night in a van to do an errand, uh, to pick up something for one of their parents. They had sort of driven over and uh, they vanished. They were, you know, they turned up both, they both turned up dead a while later, but this all happened in Washington state in 1987. What about this case? Um, piqued your curiosity in terms of just I guess you would have known about it uh, beforehand because it had resurfaced several times over the years.
1: Yeah, uh, just a a really fascinating case. Of course, I got really interested when they um, got into genetic genealogy a couple of years ago uh, because it was the first case that's actually gone to trial in the world uh, based on genetic genealogy. That's right. So so that was fascinating. And and of course, you know, they were local kids and um, just, you know, really nice decent kids that were just going to Seattle overnight and camping out in the van and picking up some parts for for Jay's father and and supposedly driving back the next day and and just, you know, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, But Tanya was found, her body was found about five or six days after she went missing. She'd been shot in the head execution style. Um, She'd been zip-tied. She'd been sexually assaulted. And... Uh, Jay's van was found very soon afterwards uh, about 20 kilometers away in Bellingham and then another day went by and they found his body in you know a completely different area of Washington state and they ended up having sort of four crime scenes over you know four counties over over this thing and it was just a huge huge investigation and, and nothing turned up and in yeah. this case, you know, they never found the um, 38 Automatic that killed her, but they did have, they had DNA from the semen that was left on her body. And um, when DNA did come on the scene in, in uh, they thought, you know, great, now we'll be able to catch it. You know, it's such a violent crime. It must be, you know, an offender would we'll probably be able to find his um, DNA in CODIS or, or our DNA data bank up in Canada and nothing, no hits, and decades nothing, went no. on, and and nothing was found, and um, it, it was just such a, you know, a mystery of how this guy, you know, could have done something so violent and, and not done anything before or afterwards. And they ended up um, doing uh, phenotyping, and phenotyping is a really interesting. Sort of thing that they do from the DNA, these labs in the States, and they'll use the DNA from the crime scene to build almost a computer image of the suspect, or of the murderer in this case, because they have got his DNA, and it'll tell them all sorts of things like eye colour and skin colour and facial structure and, and things like that, and apparently the images aren't that you know, terrifically accurate. But things like having the skin color and the ancestry really helps to eliminate a lot of um, suspects, which is what they were hoping to do. I think they had a couple of hundred at, at that point and you know the show the um, case had been on shows like um, Unsolved Mysteries and stuff like that, so they had hundreds of tips to to go through and um, so anyway and then a short time afterwards um, dr Barbara they. Venture was working with the FBI on the Golden right. State Killer and she was a genetic genealogist in the States and they found his identity that he was a former cop yeah. and after decades and again he had never come up on the radar anywhere as a former yeah. cop and and they got his DNA. and um, so The Golden
0: State Killer, yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: which is just yeah. amazing. And so Parabon Labs had the phenotyping, so they had everything sequenced, ready to go. And um, CeCe Moore, who has become quite famous now as a genetic genealogist, uh, was given the job of um, putting that through the, the DNA databanks and try to find a match. And, and you know, when you, you spit in a tube and you send it off to Ancestry.com or 23 right, yeah. Me, and ends up in a database, well, if you opt in uh, and say, yeah, I'd like to you know, upload it to um, GEDmatch, then law enforcement can also search it. And that's what happened. Um, one of this, the killer of Jay and Tanya's relatives, two of them actually, had um, put in, their dna and opted in and um, sissy moore was able to get hits pretty you know quickly on that but it can just be an incredibly long process for the golden state killer they had a, a thousand potential suspects from um, this familial dna and they had to you know build family trees and then use you know death yeah, certificates, Newspapers, of Facebook, and you know everything else to to try to you know get eliminate you know as many as they can and, and to try to narrow it down. So it's quite fascinating. It's very very time consuming, and. Uh, Uh, In the end, you know, they looked at things like age and, you know, how old would it have to be a male, obviously, and how old would they have had to be to commit these crimes decades ago? And where were they living at the time Was it close proximity? And they ended up narrowing the Golden State Killer case. They narrowed it down to, to two people and they were able to follow these suspects around, get cast off DNA from you know, a tissue or a coffee cup or a cigarette or something like that. And they were able to, to you know, identify this guy. And a similar thing happened with um, the killer of Jay and Tanya's, but yeah. she was able to identify William Talbot really quickly. And then it was yeah, a matter of... Yeah, there was just of,
0: the, two, the two relatives, right? So yeah. they, it was pretty quick, yeah. May have been justice delayed, but not justice denied for Tanya and Jay. The gene- genealogy community deserves uh, recognition. Their advancements and analytics are what helped get us to this stage. That is John Van Cuylenburg, uh, brother of Tanya Van Kylenborg, one of two victims of William Talbot. Uh, they were killed in Washington State in 1987. It wasn't until very recently, though, that that case went to trial, thanks to genetic genealogy. And not until just a few weeks ago that, in fact, uh, he was the conviction was upheld in Supreme Court. Uh, there was an appeal in that case that was that was uh, that was uh, interesting. A juror apparently juror jury bias, and uh, the appeals court. Um, ruled in favor of the defense in this case, uh, but it was overturned again or at least the conviction was upheld at the Supreme Court in Washington State. You spoke to a lot of people involved in this case, Eve uh, Lazarus, and for your book, Cold Case BC. One of the things that was interesting I found about this one is that uh, Cece, the woman who did the genetic genealogy, had memory of the case. She'd been the same age. She'd lived in BC mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, the detectives, one of the detectives involved had been an investigator on the case and was still involved later. That It, um, it struck me as having a lot of people uh, spent a lot of years looking into this one.
1: Yeah, they really did. And one of the things that really struck me, though, with this one when I talked to Cece Moore, she said, um, well, you know, this whole thing with genetic genealogy has identified a completely new type of killer. Someone like William Talbot that um, did something. He was only 24 years old when he killed them. But someone like you know like that that does this outrageously violent crime and then never does anything again it, they're sort of dubbing it one and done, but it goes against everything we think you know we think these killers kind of you know build up with little animals or something and you know and just get you know doing an assault and just get you know more violent and violent but. It, not in these cases. They're finding these people but it's just once, one really, really violent crime, and, and they're out. And if it wasn't for genetic, genetic genealogy, they'd never find them.
0: No, I, I mean, I can imagine that in this case, William Talbot would never have been found, right? There was no, no he was not on anyone's radar. He, there was no way he was going to be tracked down.
1: No, no, it's just, it's incredible what they're doing. And, uh, and finding missing people. It's the same technology that identified the babes in the woods last February.
0: Right. Of course, another case that you worked on uh, these uh, these two. It ended up being a boy and a girl. Is that right? Was that two boys?
1: Uh, two boys right. We, we yeah.
0: thought it was a boy and a girl. It was two boys. Uh, right. Ultimately, it really has changed so much. I mean, especially for. I mean, oftentimes when you talked about getting the stories out there, so people will not forget. It's amazing that science has helped jog memories to some extent. I mean, it's it's opened up a whole different chapter in some of these cases where there really weren't ever going to be answers, like the babes in the woods, like this one.
1: Yeah. No, it's great to see. And, um, you know, I'd love to see more of it happening in Canada. You know, It's kind of frustrating when you're seeing dozens and dozens of cases being solved south of the border, and we're just not taking advantage of this technology very much up here.
0: Is that, uh, you mentioned it earlier that there were some issues back, way back when in the day, in the 70s and so on, just with crime scene uh, preservation, the way that crime scenes were handled, there wasn't as much DNA gathered, so we don't have as much to go on. Is that, is that the case?
1: Yeah, that that's, um, you know, obviously an issue if it hadn't got dna they can't do this but it's um, also a privacy concern and uh it just they've really tightened up on, on the databases and what they can search missing people's a bit looser uh, they can they've got more leeway in that but they also don't in in the states everything's you know sort of you can buy everything all sorts of information mm-hmm. addresses, and and we're much tighter with our public records pri- well, private records like vital statistics and stuff like that so um genealogists would really have to work very closely with police departments and, and get the proper warrants and get all that sort of stuff that they don't need to do in the state.
0: Right. Although we've seen it happen. There was the, those uh, unsolved murders from Toronto back in the yep. early 80s. Yes. I think that case, I, I interviewed one of the genealogists who worked on that and they said, of course, they have to work very closely with police. They're not allowed to talk about it at all. Nope. Uh, but they can talk about some of the work they've done. What's the reaction been like to this book, Eve? Because I know it's not the first one you've written, but once you put all these stories out into the public sphere, I know it's been doing very well. A lot of people reading it. You must have gotten some feedback.
1: Yeah, it's really uh, captured people's attention, and it really it came out of cold case Vancouver. I started a, a Facebook page where people could sort of come and talk and maybe leave tips, and in, you know, in a perfect world, sort of. Leave information that might help to solve it. And but what happened um, was I'd put out posts on the the day that someone went missing or was murdered, and people would I'd connect with me. Families would come to me and, and tell me about their you know missing loved one or murdered loved one and, and stuff like that. And it just sort of mushroomed and mushroomed into um, the, the book in a sense. You know most of the cases seem to have found me and. And then the podcast. So, I mean, there's a huge swelling out there of people that really want to see these cases solved and, and want to do whatever they can to help.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable how many of the cases have people out there who still remember them, even though some of them, as you mentioned, date all the way back to the 40s. Uh, the most recent case in the book is 1993. And yet everywhere you looked, you found people who were either diligently trying to keep these cases uh, alive, uh, not not let them go too cold. Uh, and at the same time, or or families that that you know had stories to tell about how much devastation these crimes had had on their families in the short term. Eve Lazarus, it's been uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. The book is called Cold Case BC. It's available. It's a bestseller here, here in BC. It's actually hard to find, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, these days. It's been doing really well. Congratulations on that. And as you mentioned, Thanks. it's all about keeping these stories out there.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on.